There is a special kind of phobia from which we all suffer. It is called xenophobia. Xenophobia is a fear and sometimes a hatred of strangers or foreigners or of anything that is strange or foreign. And God is the ultimate object of our xenophobia. He is the ultimate stranger. He is the ultimate foreigner. He is holy and we are not. We fear God because he is holy. Our fear is not the healthy fear that the Bible encourages us to have. Our fear is a servile fear, a fear born of dread. God is too great for us. He is too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He is the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may, in fact, be our greatest trauma. That comes from a wonderful book I would encourage everyone to read sometime called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. The ark is coming back to Israel. We've been looking the last two weeks at the capture of the ark by the Philistines. We saw last week the ark go and be placed in the temple of Dagon. And there, God deals with Dagon. Yahweh has this epic showdown with Dagon and he wins. And now, as we continue in the narrative of 1 Samuel, God, who had set his sights on the God of the Philistines, has now turned his sights to the Philistines themselves. And they are not going to be free as we see from judgment. And God is going to continue to do what the Israelites could not do, which was protect the ark of the covenant. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Last week we read a very short portion of scripture. This week we're going to read a much longer portion of scripture. But we will begin in 1 Samuel chapter 5 beginning in verse 6. We are going to break our reading into the segments that the text itself offers for us and do some discussion along the way. So first, we are going to see what I am calling the affliction. If you would read with me the affliction in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Let's actually stop there. God begins to pour out a severe sickness on Ashdod. He begins to afflict them, as the text says. And so they have gathered together to determine what should we do with the ark. Where shall we take it? But as we're going to see, everywhere the ark goes, judgment follows. Let's pick back up verse 8. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. 
But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the city and of the city went up to heaven. So as we said, everywhere the ark goes, affliction follows. It's, it's in Ashdod, which is where the temple of Dagon is. Affliction, heavy-handed, so they move it to Gath. Affliction, heavy-handed, so they move it to Ekron. And the people of Ekron are already saying, we know what's going on. We don't want it here. God, through the possession and the sacrilege of what they are doing with the ark, is now showing to us his severity. Last week, we talked about the supremacy of God. And that was the focus of the text last week, was God's supremacy. The narrative here has shifted to a different S word. We're looking now at God's severity. Or as the text says, he is heavy-handed. God is being very severe with the Philistines. Everywhere the ark goes, judgment follows. So begins then the deliberation. What are the Philistines to do? This is supposed to be their trophy. This is supposed to be their prize. This is their symbol of victory. But it's killing them. Literally, it's killing them. And those who don't die are afflicted with tumors and sickness. So God has poured out severe judgment on them. So so begins the deliberation of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 and following. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords." So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs? And he had dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and they departed? So I love their deliberation. They bring together their religious leaders. They bring together their diviners, their priests. They clearly see this as a spiritual attack, and so this is not for the doctors. This is not for medicine. This is for the religious community. And so they bring their religious leaders and ask for a solution. They're interested in getting rid of the ark, That's their solution, but they want to check with their religious leaders, this is what we should do. And the religious leaders essentially say, you can do that, but if you do do that, that in and of itself will not appease God, because they had a system of appeasement, which by the way, the Hebrews did too. This was something they roughly had in common. Obviously, we could nuance it in important ways, but they said, it's not enough to merely return what you stole. You need to pay an homage and give glory to God. And so they determine we need to give up some gold. 
And we need to make gold tumors and golden mice. Now, why the mice? Uh, obviously, the first part of the narrative didn't tell us this, but clearly they were being, the, you know, the mice were ravaging rats, were ravaging the land. Some people suggest that the two were connected. Uh, we do know that in world history, serious diseases can be caused by rats and mice. The famous, the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, we believe was caused by rats. So some people see a connection here. God brought, uh, you know, calamity upon them through the mice. They got sick because of these mice. Um, but we don't know that. The text doesn't tell us that for sure. But either way, uh, this, the cities are being ravaged with rats and they're all getting sick and they're all dying. And, and God is showing no speciality, right? They, they make it very clear. Even the lords, whether they're rich or poor, young or old, everyone is afflicted by this. And so we need to pay homage to the sicknesses that have been inflicted with us. So God humiliates these people. I mean, what does what a golden tumor even look like? Like how much detail was in that? Was it just a gold ball? Like what, what, it, what did it look like? I mean, I'm sure the rats were easy to identify. Now, we don't even know, by the way, if God was, was, was specially involved in these diviners. We know in, in Scripture, God does sometimes speak through wicked people, both Old and New Testament. So this could theory, theoretically have been God's solution. Uh, but the text doesn't tell us that, so we don't know. We, we don't know how involved God was in this deliberation. But whether it was providentially or miraculously, either way, God has orchestrated a situation where they are not only now giving glory to God. That's what they tell him. You need to give glory to this God or else he will not relent. But they are further humiliating themselves. God has already humiliated them with the destruction of Dagon and the sickness he has poured out. And now here they are ordering their craftsmen to make golden tumors. God is really pouring out affliction on these people, not just physically, but now socially and spiritually. They are being destroyed. So that is the deliberation. But you'll notice the, the spiritual leaders are not yet entirely sure, is this really from God? Right? They, they tell the people, like, yeah, we should send this thing away. And I love, what's their primary motivation? The Exodus story. When God poured out judgment on Egypt, he was very clear in the Old Testament that this is an event that is going to echo in time. People are going to remember this. And we see this all throughout the Israelites crossing the promised land. People feared Israel because they heard about what happened in Egypt. And notice how this, the, the Egyptian story has become a Bible lesson even for the Philistines. <laughs> the Philistines are sitting there thinking, you know, we could be like Pharaoh and we could just harden our hearts and dig our heels in and just keep the ark here and just keep celebrating our victory. But that's what Pharaoh did and it went really bad for him. So let's not be like Pharaoh and let's just get rid of the ark and let's, let's send these golden tumors. But you'll notice as the text continues, they're, they're still not 100% sure. It's been seven months. Isn't it possible that this is just all coincidence? I mean, we've gone through a year of sickness in our country. Not as severe as this. But still, not seven months. How, is, is that enough time or is that too long to know to know this is definitely the hand of the Lord? They, they don't know. Maybe it's just coincidence. So that leads, the end of their deliberation ends with a test. They come up with a way to test and see whether these afflictions are truly from the God of Israel or if they are just coincidence. Chapter 6, follow with me, continuing in verse 7. 
Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, that it happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images and their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned each to the right, nor to, they turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and, sac- and, and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the, the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So they come up with this test. They take two milk cows, which have not been trained in the art of yoking, Right? When you put the yoke on the cows and make them work, that's something that these beasts have to learn how to do. It's uncomfortable at first. They are disobedient and stubborn, but you eventually train them and learn how to do it. So they take two milk cows, which have never had a yoke on them, and then expect them to act as if they are skilled yoke cows. I don't know if that's the right word for it. But not only that, they add another layer to it. They take their calves away. And I I didn't grow up in a farming community. I didn't grow up in a ranching community. But my assumption is, just what I know about the nature of, of the world we live in, is you take mom's children away, mom's not happy. That's pretty much the case for any beast or human on the face of the earth. So the calves are taken away, and these untrained cows have not learned to cope with that yet. So the natural, if you were looking at this from a purely humanistic perspective, this shouldn't work. These cows aren't going anywhere. They've never been yoked before. You've taken their calves from them. They're not doing anything. And so the, the Philistines know if they do go against nature, then clearly God is, the God of Israel is at work here. And what happens? These cows just march straight to Israel. There's no stopping, no turning. It's just, just a nice steady march right to Israel. So the Philistines say, okay, yeah, the, uh, the tumors, the death, the rats, this was no coincidence. The God of Israel was severe to us. This was his hand. This was not Mother Nature. This was the father of all. But here's the problem. The ark is returned. The, 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 the uh, gold has been accepted. The sacrifice has been offered. This is good news, right? So God's done, right? He's going to relent, right? All is made well, right? God's not done. Let's finish the narrative out. Verse 17. 
These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both their fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Into whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The ark is finally returned to Israel. And what does God do? He keeps killing. He keeps killing. His hand was severe on Israel. And the ark was stolen. His hand was severe on the Philistines. And the ark was returned. And his hand is still severe. This narrative is making crystal clear the great severeness of our God. Why, why was he so severe? Well, it tells us that men were struck down, 70 men specifically, because they gazed upon the ark or they looked upon the ark. Now, we don't know precisely what happened here. Some suggest that they uh, examined the ark, which would, would have required a lot of touching it, opening it, closing it, doing a full examination. But the Old Testament law prohibited non-Levites from touching the ark in that way. So it's possible that they were giving an examination to the ark, they touched it and they were killed. But I think it's even more severe than that. I, I take the opinion that there is an account in uh, the book of Leviticus, I believe, it may be Deuteronomy, I think it's Leviticus, where when the ark traveled with the people of Israel, there was a particular group of people that were commissioned to to be the ones who took the ark. And even they were told that the ark had to be clothed for they were not even allowed to look at it. My suggestion is that these men probably didn't even touch the ark. They probably just looked at it. And then they were dead. The severity of God is on full display. And no matter how you interpret the text, I, I think either way we clearly see something severe here, whether they were touching it and examining it or just looking at it. God killed them from what is, from a human perspective, a very trivial, small, trite thing. And his hand is so severe. And so how do they respond? It's very ironic. They really respond in two primary ways. The first way, the reason I say it's ironic is because it mirrors the way the Philistines responded. Which is what? Get this thing out of here. Isn't that a very sad reality? That the people of God are talking about the presence of God the same way the enemies of God talk about the presence of God. I don't want it here. God is being so heavy-handed that whether you're his enemy or part of his people, they want nothing to do. Get him out of here. You know, I can't help but think of the story of Jesus when he casts out the demons and the Gazarenes throws them in the pigs and they die. And you think, isn't this supposed to be a moment of triumph? I mean, he just healed this man. And what do they do? Get him out of here. The second part, well, really the first chronologically, but the second part I think helps, clears us up. Why, why this response? Why this severity? Well, verse 20 is the key. This long section that we've read, 
is all leading to the climax of verse 20. Verse 20 is the heart and soul of today's sermon. It's the heart and soul of this narrative. This is what God is trying to communicate, not just to Israel, but to the Philistines as well. It's this. The men of Beth Shemesh, what did they say in response to all of this severity? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? God is holy, and we are not. And that is why, in our natural state, we are all terrified of the holiness of God, Jew or Gentile. He is holy, and we are not. So what is God trying to prove? What point is he trying to make with all of this severity? It's this. If you wanted a a main idea for this sermon, if you wanted a big idea, a thesis, a topic sentence, whatever you call it, this is what we're getting at. God is holy. God is holy. Now, before we get into application, what does that mean for us? What do we do with this? We need to clarify two really important things. First and foremost, what is the holiness of God? What does that mean? In our culture, in our kind of Christian life, the holiness of God is typically used in a narrow sense, but it has a broader definition, which is the more appropriate definition. In the narrow sense, the holiness of God is is essentially the exact same thing as the righteousness of God. When we talk about being holy, we talk about being morally upright, right? So if, if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, you need to be more holy, you need to be a holier person, you would take that as a moral commandment. You need to live your life more morally. You need to be a better person. Be more holy. Or if you, maybe in a more positive example, if you were to describe your parent or a Christian disciple that you had in your life as the holiest person you've ever known, what are you saying about them? You're saying that they lived an incredibly righteous, moral, upright life. They lived a life you wanted to live. So typically, holiness is kind of seen as the same thing as moral purity. And I think that's an appropriate way to use it. I think the Bible uses it like that from, in many places. But the word holiness is technically a much broad, has a much broader definition than that. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word, actually means to cut or to separate. So at its base root, something along the lines of being separated, being cut out, being different or unique is at the heart of holiness. And so I think that the, the best way to understand holiness This is what R.C. Sproul and many other theologians said, and I I really firmly agree with this, is that holiness is the word we use to describe all of God's attributes. It's not just his moral purity. Everything about God, if we were to take, you know, you would do a study on the attributes of God and you were to learn about who God is, how do you take this huge study? Men, Men write books thousands and thousands of pages on just the attributes of God. Who is God and what is he like? You can write thousands of pages on that. How do you condense thousands and thousands of pages to communicate to the common person? And it's this, he is holy. There is none like him. He is altogether different from you, from me, than from anything else you can imagine, see, taste, touch, hear. God is cut out. He is separate. Nothing is like him. He is holy. You think you know someone righteous? He's more righteous. You think you know someone powerful? He's more powerful. You think you know someone good? He's more good. You think you know someone who knows a lot? He knows way more. He is altogether different and exalted, supreme above all things. And the word we use to describe that is holy. God is holy. 
We are not. Nothing else is. Now, here's the second question we have to answer before we get to application. I found this. How did the people of Israel get to holiness from all of this? How, so, let's walk through the steps again. So, God pours out judgment on Israel. They all die. The ark is stolen. God pours out judgment on the Philistines. The ark is returned. God pours out more judgment on the people of Beth Shemesh. Okay, so everyone's being judged, and what's our response? How holy is God? Maybe you think differently, but let me just be very honest with how I first read the text during my studies. This to me seemed like what in the logical world we call a non sequitur. If, if, if you were engaged in a study of logic or if you were on a debate team, you'd learn about the logical fallacy of a non sequitur. A non sequitur is when your conclusion has no relationship to your premises. A non sequitur is when the conclusion has no relation to the premises. So let me give you a, a bizarre example of a non sequitur. Premise number one all mammals have fur. Premise number two dogs are mammals. Therefore, somebody left the kitchen lights on this morning. That might be a true conclusion. Maybe someone did leave the kitchen lights on this morning. That might be true. But it has nothing to do with the premises. It has nothing to do with dogs or fur or mammals. It's a total non sequitur. How did you get from premise one, premise two to this conclusion? You just jumped. You created a bridge where there is no bridge. And to me, when I read this text, I read verse 20. This, this definitely is the climax. This is the teaching moment, but isn't it a non sequitur? Hey, God killed the Philistines. He also killed the Jews. Therefore, he must be holy. What? Like, where, where are they getting the holiness of God from? And I think that, and, and part of the reason why this is, uh, I think this popped into my head is because of this. We just live in such a different culture than these people. That typically, whenever these kinds of passages are brought up in our culture, passages of the severity of God, of men and women and children being afflicted by God in ways that, if we're being honest, we don't like. It's okay to say that. Like this this is, makes me uncomfortable sometimes. And typically when passages like that are brought up, what is the context that it's being brought up in? Why are those passages being brought up? Almost 100% of the time, those passages are being brought up to prove that either God is not good or to move from there that he doesn't exist at all. Right? This is typically what happens. We grow up in an American church and we read these really, really difficult Old Testament Bible verses of like blood and death and judgment. And so we just don't talk about them. Right? I'm not going to teach my children that God gave babies tumors. <laughs> right? we, we don't, so we just kind of don't talk about it. And then they go off to college and someone is willing to talk about it. Their professor who hates God, he's willing to talk about it. He's willing to mention it. And so typically, the only context that we ever bring up this issue of the severity of God under is a context in which we're questioning him, his goodness, his existence. But notice, that was an impossible context for the people of Israel. Right? The, their experience, the context they were in, the, the, there was no worldview for them possible of which the God of Israel doesn't exist. They just, the way they had encountered him and experienced him, that was just an impossibility. There was no way for them to conclude, God has destroyed us, therefore God doesn't exist. That's a logical fallacy. If God doesn't exist, he's not the one who destroyed you. 
That, that was an impossible conclusion for them to reach. So how do we describe their conclusion? I, I like the way R.C. Sproul said it in his book. The basic assumption of Israel is that God's judgments are always according to righteousness. His justice is never unfair, never whimsical, never tyrannical. It is impossible for God to be unjust because his justice is holy. So you see, these were a people, their presupposition was that the God of Israel exists and he is good. And so when they see this, when they saw the justice, they were, or excuse me, the judgment, they were able to interpret it correctly. Which is, when we see something that just seems not that big a deal to us, but it's a big deal to God, what are we reminded of? That he doesn't exist? No. That he is so important and special and beyond us that what would be a small offense to me could never be a small offense to him. It'd be like if you broke a window one day and you thought, oh, bummer, you know, that's going to cost me, I don't know how much, $100, $200, $300 for window replacement. And you get a bill and someone says, this is going to cost you $3.4 million. You know what you would assume? That must, not be an, that must have been a special window. That must have been a window not like other windows. I thought it was normal. I thought it was just a normal window. But it must have been, you know, maybe it was from a museum or it's been preserved for over 3,000 years or something. Because there's no way I put a crack in that window and I'm charged $4 million. Either I'm getting ripped off or that window is way more important than I thought it was. And so here's the mindset of the people of Israel. When we offend God, horrible things happen. He must be way more important than we even thought he was. He must be so amazing and so special and so unique and so unlike us that even from our perspective, the smallest act of disobedience deserves the greatest of wrath. So they don't see this in our culture. Oh, he must be a tyrannical bully. They see it as he is holy. So this actually makes sense. If you think God is being harsh here, let me, let me just tell you, your view of yourself is way too high and your view of God is way too low. This is not about a tyrannical God. This is about an arrogant people who think that to offend and disobey and disregard God is a small thing. But it's not. Why? Because he's holy. Because he is more precious and more important than we can possibly imagine. Really what this text should do is it should cause us to be filled with great joy every single morning knowing I deserved to die yesterday. I lived my life in such a way yesterday that in response to a holy God, I deserve to die. None of us deserve to be here. But he is merciful. And he is gracious and he is good to us. So what do we learn from this text? What is all this severity and judgment and harshness? What is it teaching us? It's teaching us in verse 20. God is holy. God is holy. And so let's finish with, what does that mean for us then? What do I do with that? Do I just walk around? Oh, I hope God doesn't kill me at any moment. How do we, as the people of God, living in light of the revelation of Christ, what is the application of the holiness of God? And here how it is. So we have a, a, an easy sermon thesis, uh, God is holy. And we have an equally easy sermon application. What do I do with the Holy God? You ready for this? Fear God. Fear Him. 
We as a Christian church in America need a whole lot more of the fear of God. In Scripture, R.C. Sproul in the quote we read at the beginning brought this out. There are two kinds of fear in Scripture. There are two ways to fear the Lord in the Bible. One of them is, is not something that we are called to. And it's called what people have called a servile fear. This is a very immature fear. This is just a pragmatic fear. This is a fear that a servant has for a master. Where it's just, I don't want God to hurt me. I'm afraid of God hurting me. And that's as far as it goes. And that's a kind of slavish fear. A fear of punishment. And that's not something that the Bible particularly calls us to. We're going to read in the Lord's Supper where John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. If you're in Christ today, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You should not be fearing the final judgment, the condemnation of God if you are in Christ. That's not a, an appropriate fear. I'm just, I'm just really afraid of being hurt. Now, it is a rational fear, especially for unbelievers. This is why Jesus, when addressing a mixed crowd of both believers and unbelievers, told them in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Do not fear man who can destroy your body, but rather fear God who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. So Jesus has no problem telling a mixed crowd, Listen, you think, you think the wrath of man is bad? I've got something way scarier for you than that. But when we are in Christ, we are not called to that kind of low-level terror. So no, the application is not that you should be shaking in your boots all day long. Oh, I hope my angry God doesn't kill me today. You're in Christ. That kind of a lifestyle should be gone from you. You are loved, accepted, and cherished by God in Christ Jesus. He loves you. But make no mistake about it. The Bible is still very clear that even for believers, there is a kind of fear of the Lord that we are never called to repent of. We will often call this a reverential fear. To reverence God. As a matter of fact, many of your Bible translations will sometimes, in places that the word fear is used, will actually translate it as reverence. This is a fear which is tempered by the loving relationship we have with God through Christ. So we never want to lose sight of the fact that he is holy and we are not. That he is righteous and that I am not and that I deserve death and that I am unworthy. We never want to lose sight of that. But without Christ, that just grows and grows into pure terror. But Christ tempers that. Christ cuts off some of those extreme boundaries and we are able to manage a kind of fear that is, has, has a sense of of terror, but it's primarily just reverential. It's this feeling awestruck by how much more glorified God is than me. You want to know what I found is a really funny, in my studies this week, a really funny example of how, it might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I promise you I'm not. And you want to know how we can prove that, is in the development of the English word awful. When's the last time someone's ever asked you, describe your God for me, and you said, oh, he's awful. You wouldn't want to say that today, right? This word has developed to have a meaning today, which that, something that's awful just means it's really, really bad. An awful movie is not a good movie. But you want to know what's ironic about that? Sound the word awful out. What is it saying? When you say a movie is awful, what are you saying? It fills me with awe. It's full of awe. That's the exact opposite meaning. 
So how did, how did this word, which came to mean full of awe, come to have the exact opposite meaning? Let me tell you about the, 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 the uh, evolution of this word. Awful, its original definition is this. Worthy of respect or fear, striking with awe and causing dread. So you see how in its original definition it had two elements to it. Awe and dread. Magnificence and fear. They were both caught up in this. And that's why you will find ancient documents in the Christian life that describe God as awful. This is a great definition of who he is. He is a God who in Christ strikes us with awe and wonder and joy and gladness. But because he is holy and we are not, it also strikes us with great fear. And this is why human beings, every time they encounter the glory of God in Scripture, it never is responded to with a kind of trivial attitude. It's terrifying. We find all throughout the Bible that God is perfectly comfortable revealing in himself in ways that both attract and repel. I've used this example from a sermon before, so it shows you just how uh, boring my life is. I don't have a lot of good sermon examples to give you. But let me just give you it for a second time. I told you one time in a sermon a long time ago about when I was in Alamosa and we are having a beautiful little fire under the stars and something flew over our heads. If I was living in Roswell at the time, I think it would have been a much bigger story. At the time, I didn't know what it was. I went and did some research, and I guess Elon Musk has this huge chain of satellites. It's like a hundred satellites that are connected, and they're circling the earth, and he's trying to create like a global Wi-Fi system or something. I, I don't know. It's all beyond me. But at the time, I didn't know that's what it was. For me, it didn't even look like satellites, because what does a satellite look like when it's far away? It looks like a star, just a glowing light. So here's what we saw, this beautiful, clear Alamosa night. And then I just saw a row of a hundred stars, all perfectly spaced apart, zooming over our head. It was just a perfect line of stars zooming, and it was like never-ending. And it was interesting. I remember I was in a shed getting firewood when I heard this commotion outside. And I go outside and I look at these stars. And the feelings that I felt were so mixed and so hard for me to describe. There was a certain sense in which I was attracted to this. It was just mesmerizing. It was beautiful. Do you know how, can you, I mean, it's hard to even put into words. Can you imagine just seeing a hundred shooting stars perfectly lined up back to back? Just right above your head, whizzing across the sky. It was glorious. It was beautiful. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. But at the very same time, I was also overwhelmed with this very uncomfortable feeling. What is going on? For all I knew, this was an invasion. Not, not of aliens, but maybe this is China. Maybe this is Russia. Maybe these are satellites that are figuring things out about me that I don't want them to know. Like, how, how do I not know what this is? I, I'm sitting here in my backyard and, and, and stars are falling out of the sky. How, how do I not know what this is? It was terrifying. It made me feel so small and it reminded me that there is so much going on in the world and now in the universe that I don't even know. And that's terrifying. Who knows what China's up to? Who knows what Russia's up to? Who knows what the United States government is up to? That, that string of satellites filled me with two contradictory emotions. I was in love with it and I hated it. It was awful. And this is what the holiness of God does. 
there's a certain sense, it is so magnificent and it is so incredible and mind-blowing and boggling that we are attracted to it. We want it. I want to be in your presence. Give me more of the holiness of God. I want to be with God. But there's another sense when we reflect on how unholy we are where it's terrifying. Send the ark away. And in the Christian life, we are never called to lose that tension. For, forget, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works both in you and through you. What's Paul saying? The holy God dwells you and is using you. The fact that the holy God is inside of you and he is working through you in the world. You know what that reaction, you know how you should respond to that? Fear and trembling. God is working out your salvation. He's saving you by grace. He's persevering you through life. He's working in you and through you. And so yes, there's joy and happiness and gladness there. But what is Paul's commandment? Fear him. Tremble in the presence of the holy God. This is also found in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 18. Peter tells us that God is holy, therefore you should be holy. And you need to live in fear as you walk out your pilgrimage here on earth. The holiness of God demands our fear. It demands our obedience. So what does it look like to fear God? The first thing is obedience. When we think of how holy God is, when we see that even the smallest offenses deserve death before a holy God, how should that cause us to respond? He is holy, so I must obey him. A life lived of obedience is a life ultimately of fear of the Lord. People in the South, I love, I love Southern expression. This is, this is an expression that is, you know, not used very often. Like, we have these different titles for Christians. Like, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm born again. And these are all biblical. But you know what's an old one that I miss? Used to be really popular, doesn't happen anymore. I'm a God-fearer. You ask, you know, maybe your son or your daughter meets someone. And what is, what's the first question the parents ask? Does he fear God? That's a good question. Because you know what we need both as a church and as a country? You know what we need a lot more of in this country? We need a lot more fear of God. Because it is the fear of God that provokes us to holiness, as 1 Peter says. And so we see how the fear of God is necessary for discipleship. I would challenge you with this. If you're at a place in your life right now where you feel like spiritually you're stagnant, you just don't have that vibrant relationship with the Lord that you once had, or maybe you've been caught in habitual sin, Maybe there's a sin in your life right now that you are struggling to repent of. Can I suggest to you that maybe the antidote is to fear God more? Maybe you need more of the holiness of God in your life. I, I've often heard Christians say, you know, I've, I'm struggling to get over the sin. I don't know why. I mean, I just, I love God so much. I love him so much. Why can't I repent of this? And I say, you want to know why? Because love's not the problem right now. Fear is the problem. I have no doubt that you love God. Do you fear him? Fear of the Lord leads us to obedience. So you want to know, do I fear God? Look at your life. Are you committed to obedience? Are you striving for the perseverance and for sanctification? If not, then I would suggest perhaps you love God, but maybe don't fear him. 
I would say another important application for us, what does it look like to fear God? Is this should definitely affect how we worship Him on Sundays. The heartbeat of our worship is so perfectly encapsulated in Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that an amazing, open, blatant, unapologetic bringing together of things which our common sense should tell us don't belong together? How can I rejoice and tremble? What is trembling? That's like being scared. How can I be rejoiced and happy and joyful and also scared? We call that reverence. <laughs> These things work together. Our joy is tempered by our fear. Our fear is tempered by our joy. That's how we have reverential worship. We don't just come here to serve God. We come to serve Him with fear. We want to make sure, does the way we worship God on Sunday communicate to believers, or forgive me, to unbelievers, to outsiders, that this church fears a holy God? This is why we, I tend to be so critical from this pulpit of the modern evangelical movement. All of my criticisms ultimately boil down to this point. We have lost fear of God. We think too lightly of Him. And this is why churches so unapologetically promote themselves as a party. And they say things like, you know what, people come here and they get a little uncomfortable because we're a rambunctious crowd and we're not afraid to yell and to dance and to do spins. And sorry, I'm, just, I'm not going to apologize for being grateful and happy in the Lord. Fine, you can come here. You don't like that our music is banging and that we're jumping around the sand. Like, you don't like that, that's fine. We're just, you can go be, be depressed. We're going to be joyful in the Lord. Should we be joyful? Of course. We don't want to be that old expression, the frozen chosen. We don't want to come to church and have only fear. We don't want people to walk in these doors and think, man, these people really respect God, but they don't seem to like Him very much. That's not good. So guess what? Joy, emotion, these things are very good and appropriate in worship. But here's the problem. Parties do joy really, really well. They don't do fear very well. When's the last time someone's invited you to a reverential party? You go to a Halloween party, go to a birthday party, go to a nightclub. When's the last time you've gone to a reverential party? They don't exist. Parties do joy really well. They don't do fear very well. So I don't want our church to look like a party. Yes, I want us to be joyful. Yes, I want us to be happy. But I want us also to remember that we are being joyful and happy in the midst of a holy God. This is not a party. We have come here to serve him and to be joyful, yes, but we come with fear and trembling as we enter into the presence of a holy God. Can I suggest that the reason worship in America has become so anemic is because we think too lightly of God? So in conclusion, I want to end with this verse. I love this verse. If you want a whole purpose, if someone ever asks you, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Just memorize Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, which says this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man.